Dr. Anthony is known to many of you. He's a good friend of this council. He's addressed us 10 times prior to this evening. Uh, the first time in 1987, and one of the addresses that I remember most was during Desert Shield in, in uh, December of, of 90, and a very memorable address, one that had just about everything from my standpoint uh, correct, and uh, very much the, the policy which the United States then did follow after uh, the military success. But in any case, Dr. Anthony is a, a longtime student of, uh, uh, of the Gulf area. Um, he uh, studied uh, at uh, VMI, degree in history, president of his senior, his class for four years. Uh, he was introduced, I think, at the that 1990 talk uh, by the president of T. Rowe Price, who was a classmate of yours at, the, at VMI. Uh, his master's degree is from Georgetown School of Foreign Service, his PhD from SICE uh, in Washington. Um, and, and spectacularly, he received an appointment to the SICE faculty while still a student there. Uh, he's known for uh, his, his expertise in the area, which now goes back 40 years. Um, he's published widely. Uh, he has the remarkable uh, uh, footnote of having been invited to all of the uh, leadership meetings of the ministerial and heads of state uh, uh, sessions uh, uh, summits uh, among the Gulf states uh, since its founding and the only American to have that. He's been knighted by the King of Morocco. The accolades which uh, he's received from various avenues are numerous. He's uh, worked for the Department of State, the Department of Defense, in lecturing and consulting, uh, and, uh, and he's remarkably taken as sort of author, tutor, a guide, uh, 200 United States congressmen into that part of the world, uh, along with their staffs and senior people, and 140 of the staff officers from Central Command, including all the names that are well known to, to you. Uh, the, uh, we could take the last time that we've lost to go through his resume, and, and every part of it is, is wonderful, but cutting through it is a st very strong sense of public service. He uh, is the founder of the National Council on Arab-U.S. Relations. Um, and he's participated in innumerable uh, public service type activities. Um, and many of his rewards, uh, awards have been just for that kind of public service. Um, whenever one wants to think about who could talk authoritatively about uh, mm. the Gulf area, the, the single person that people think of is John Duke Anthony. And as we puzzle over unraveling even the actors in the Syria-Iraq business today, uh, we're fortunate that we have someone who can unravel that, speak to the questions with great authority. Uh, it's, we're, we're delighted to be able to present this evening Dr. John Duke Anthony. Thank you, Dr. Baird, and thank all of you for your, your patience <coughs> and understanding of uh, a different version, not congressional gridlock, uh, but another kind. It took the better part of three hours uh, to, to reach you just from that short distance away, and 
Uh, my apologies uh, for those of you who've had to wait uh, so long. And this is my favorite um, international affairs, uh, foreign relations, foreign policy uh, organization in America. And uh, this says quite something about Dr. Byrd and his associates and all of you who have supported it over the years. Uh, and it cannot exist without support and volunteers at the grassroots levels such as what you uh, represent. <clears throat> I'm aware that near here is the Holocaust Museum and that Baltimore is um, a proud host of many people uh, who still uh, are survivors of the Holocaust and who are troubled <clears throat> emotionally, spiritually, uh, politically, historically, in terms of what has happened to them. Uh, but surely even those who identify with the Holocaust Museum <clears throat> can also identify with the humanitarian crisis uh, that has been raging in much of the Middle East in the last uh, f five years. Uh, my focus this evening <clears throat> will be not so much on those areas or not at all, except where relevant or in the Q&A uh, part of what we discuss here, uh, namely Syria. Uh, it will have to do somewhat with Iraq, uh, but I've been asked to focus on Arabia and the Gulf, <clears throat> and there are eight countries uh, in the Gulf, uh, Persian Gulf, Arab Gulf, uh, the Gulf, uh, whatever phraseology you wish to use. Textbooks have it overwhelmingly as the Persian Gulf. History books do, and any proud Iranian nationalist uh, would insist on that. In fact, in terms of enunciation and pronunciation, I've never heard an Iranian say that the Persian Gulf. It's the Persian Gulf uh, there uh, to, to accentuate uh, uh, that aspect of it. But seven of the countries are not uh, Iranian or Persian, they are Arab. And uh, that uh, consists of Iraq, uh, the only republican or non-monarchical uh, country in governance uh, of the eight, and six Arab monarchies. Uh, the maps that I have provided to you will uh, show you that from Kuwait all the way down to Oman, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman, and all five of them border Saudi Arabia, the biggest one of them all. So I will go at a gallop and uh, having of a necessity to be probably all too superficial uh, because of the, the eight. There's no way that one can, in uh, 35 to 40 minutes, uh, uh, give equal justice uh, to the eight. Uh, but I will do my best to try to sketch a portrait of them, and uh, your uh, request was for me to help you understand what is going on in terms of the dynamics of these uh, eight countries. Uh, I will do my best. Uh, we can start with Iran uh, and look at the map there, and you will see that Iran is shaped uh, pretty much like Saudi Arabia. Uh, one could almost fit into the other. Uh, each of them has uh, 13 neighbors. And imagine if we in the United States had 13 neighbors. 
Imagine if uh, some of them, uh, if not uh, all of them, were poorer than we are and envious of us and jealous of us and uh, wanting uh, us to share more with them uh, than we do. And some would think that, well, because we are not likely to do that, then we should invade them. We should take this part. We should take that part, etc. Uh, that's uh, the kind of uh, defense in psychology uh, that you would have if you lived in a country like Saudi Arabia, and likewise if you lived in a country like Iran. Uh, we look at Iran from our own perspective, uh, going up to the nuclear agreement and deal that's uh, being implemented, uh, but how many uh, realize that Iran uh, is surrounded uh, by countries and the forces of countries that are inimical uh, to what Iran has been ever since the 1979 revolution or since January uh, 1979 when the Shah hit the fan. <laughs> if you were to look at the world from an Iranian perspective, you would see it quite differently than an American looks at it from the perspective of the uh, United States. Um, and what we have nationally, uh, uh, and I will say is a flaw, is a, is a shortcoming, uh, a limitation on our side. We have an, a deficit of empathy. We are unable, many of us, or we are reluctant to try to project ourselves psychologically, sociologically, and otherwise into the shoes of other people. And yet uh, many um, subscribe to the ethos embedded in the phrase, do not do unto others that which you would not have others do unto you. And so we bridle and bristle. We, we react instantly when people talk about intruding in affair, air affairs or speaking uh, critically or negatively, pessimistically, about America's uh, prospects uh, to be the leader that it once was on the moral stage of, of humankind because of this flaw and that flaw and this flaw and that flaw. Uh, we do not like that. But we don't seem to have inhibitions for the most part in talking about other peoples, other countries, other systems and structures of governance and systems of political dynamics. And so when we do that, uh, we are seen as abrasive and intrusive and interfering in the domestic affairs of other countries in ways that we would not tolerate uh, for a millisecond other countries interfering in our society. And so if one wants to have a root, a pervasive root, a deep root, a massive root for the anti-Americanism that exists in some parts of this region, in some countries more than others, uh, that would be the root of much of it and much of that has flowed from it in terms of our policies and our positions and our ad actions and our attitudes. Uh, but with regard to Iran, let's try to be as clinical, detached, and objective as is humanly possible for a few minutes to understand why it cannot be ignored. It must not be isolated. Uh, it is a player. Uh, it has long been one of the oldest uh, countries and cultures uh, on the planet, uh, going back at least 4,000 years. 
And so if you take even that into consideration, you can see uh, why Iran has looked uh, unfavorably uh, across the waters and elsewhere with countries and cultures that are newer, that are more brittle, uh, that are more fragile, and from an Iranian perspective have not produced, created, contributed nearly as much as Iran has over the millennia. And how many people know that Iran is smaller, far smaller than it once was because what was the Soviet Union until 1989 was much bigger than it was. Iran has been bitten, chewed, chopped off six times since the 1790s. Think of it as an American. We lost New England. We lost the Great Lakes. We lost um, the Northwest. And we lost uh, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. Uh, this would be a rough analogy in terms of what happened, has happened to Iran over the last three centuries as such. If we do not project ourselves into the shoes old situations of others, how on earth can we begin <clears throat> to comprehend where they're coming from in terms of why don't they do this and why don't they stop that? And my role here, to the degree I can with my own limitations, is to try to share some of that as I have in, in these sentences thus far. But there's more. Iran's population is larger than the population of all seven countries in that region combined. Okay. Its armed forces are larger than all of the other seven combined. Had there not been a person by the last name of Brahma, when the United States invaded Iraq March 19, 2003, and proceeded to disband Iraq's 600,000-person army, uh, many of them who took their weapons home with them and turned them shortly on ourselves and the collaborators with their invasion and occupation. I couldn't make the statement that I just made. It would be Iraq that had the larger armed forces established, more battle-tested, more experienced, better trained, better maneuvered, better exercised than all of the rest of them combined. Uh, but this is Iran on the demographic side. Now, the geographic side, look at that in terms of Iran's borders going from Iraq all the way beyond the Hormuz Strait, more than 550 miles. And along that coastline are 19 different ports as such, more than all the ports of all the seven other countries in the region uh, combined. Ponder the following, that we are the, still the world's largest consumer of energy, hydrocarbon fuels, we're the biggest importer up until a few years ago, year after year after year after year. And this resource has been key to America's unrivaled standard of living the world over since World War II. Go to the gas station here and say, fill her up and then ponder what it would cost you if you did that in Antwerp 
or Rotterdam or Tokyo or Budapest or someplace else. You'd be paying five to six times as much as what we pay. And yet we are seen as the loudest crybabies, the most consistent complainers, the most um, uh, unempathetic in terms of realizing we have an arrangement with this region like no other country or people or government or economy on the planet. And we're the net beneficiaries of that relationship. Even though we have now come up with our own additional source of hydrocarbon fuels in terms of shale oil and shale gas, which has made many think, well, we don't need that place anymore. Why the hell should we remain there? Uh, there's nothing in it for us. Uh, they're just nothing but a collection of gas stations, whereas the people in the region see themselves as countries. Uh, they're nothing but uh, objects uh, to be coerced, cajoled, connived, contrived, manipulated, uh, influenced, uh, and we just do not need them anymore. Uh, this is naivete. This is ignorance run amok. And if it were to become part of policy, it would be dangerous, reckless, and feckless in the extreme. In the sense just of Iran that we're sticking on for a minute because it deserves uh, this kind of commentary, which is not otherwise easily available. All of the area offshore Iran is laced with oil and gas. The map does not show this one, but others do, that Iran is the only country in the world that has vast amounts of oil and gas in three places. Offshore, that 550-mile boundary, inside of Iran, where they have 10% of the world's known hydrocarbon resources, and they're number two in terms of gas resources behind only the Russians in the world. And thirdly, the Caspian Sea. Okay? No country in the world is position or situation quite like that. And the Iranians know it. But if you fly over Iran, you look down and you think that there are 4,000 carats on fire because of the orange burst coming up from the ground. And this is because they've been isolated and sanctioned, punished for the last 30 years and not able to receive the technology and the science uh, that will allow them to take those gases that are being burned and put them to commercial and industrial use. At least 4,000. I've arranged to fly over Iran at every hour of the day in order to get a better feeling of, of what is below me. And the same thing with regard to Iraq although Iraq is changing in its oil situation, has had a quantum jump in the last few years, but Iraq was not sanctioned to the degrees that Iran was. Uh, Iran just had its most recent elections, April 28th, its first ones after the revolution in 1979, produced 50% of the parliament as clerics, as religious individuals dressed, robed, just like Ayatollah Khomeini. But in the most recent election, only 6% of the parliament 
of clerics. We can talk more about Iran, but this is enough for right now, uh, except that Iran holds the six GCC countries in its crosshairs in the sense that it believes it should be a member of that six-state Gulf Cooperation Council, but it is not a member. And in terms of the other six, of the six, uh, Iran would become a member over their dead body because of the question of trust. Iran has interfered in every single one of their societies. The intelligence individuals in these six countries have thick files of what Iran has been doing to make them unstable, insecure, dealing with proxies of individuals who would be more sympathetic to Tehran than to their own capital. Move quickly, please, to Iraq. Iraq had a population of 24 million people when we invaded it. Two million rapidly became refugees. The best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, the pharmacists, the professors, the lawyers, the teachers, uh, the doctors, you name it. Syria took in 1.3 million immediately. None with visas either. Think of this from a charitable, philanthropic, humanitarian perspective because we were the invaders that made this happen. And up to four years after what we did, the total number of Iraqis that we had allowed into America was 28,000 versus 1.3 million that Syria allowed in versus 700,000 that Jordan allowed in versus 50,000 that Beirut and elsewhere in Lebanon had let in or Dubai or Dubai if you want to pronounce it that way in the United Arab Emirates let in uh, or large numbers than 50,000 that Saudi Arabia let in and we were the ones who made the Iraqis who worked with us collaborators and some of you who are survivors of the Holocaust recall how France had collaborators when Nazi Germany rolled into Paris. And then Nazi Germany rolled into 18 other countries, too, and put them on their back. Only Great Britain remained weak, wavering, tottering, until uh, we came to their aid. And it did not crumble or fall. But there were collaborators in each and every one of those other countries. So we, in effect, put bullseyes on the chest of our drivers, our facilitators, our expediters, our interrogators, on their chest and on their back. Now, ponder if another country were to invade America, China, for one, which is rising. You think there wouldn't be American collaborators with China? If you say no, you're smoking something. <laughs> it would get to a point for some where they say, I have no choice. I have six children. I have three children. Um, all of us have lost 40 pounds just in two months. We just, we can't eat. And there's nothing for us. But I hear that the invading power needs a driver.
needs this, needs that. I have no choice but to do that. So if you think there wouldn't be collaborators to communist China coming into America, you are indeed smoking something, okay? So apart from the two million that became external re uh, refugees, the cream of the cream, two million others became internally displaced. They had to flee from their home. They were chased from their home, or their home was, was blown up. That's four million people out of the 24 million. One-sixth think of it in American terms, that would be 50 million Americans who <clears throat> became either refugees or domestically displaced, okay? One-sixth of America. We took in only 28,000, okay? Think of Syria in the last year, 2015, Germany took in one million from last January of 2015 to October, they took in 875,000 refugees. In the remaining two months, they took in more. They brought in more than one million refugees. We have brought in 3,000. This is an aspect of Iraq where we, in an essence, smashed the country to smithereens, whatever smithereens is. I've heard that word since I was a child. Someone can define it, please do so. Uh, because we did that. We robbed Iraq of its national sovereignty, its politi political independence, its territorial integrity. And the four things that are key to America's constitution. Thank you. What are the four things that are key to America's constitution? Why is America what it is and how it is in terms of its structure of governance, in terms of values and priorities. These four things are in our Constitution. These four slots of the first four and the most important four for any administration, Democratic or Republican, always to fill. And people are keen. Who are going to be those four? One is for domestic safety. Citizens demand that. We do not want it to have to pack heat and to be looking over our shoulder constantly and be insecure. So this is a basic demand. Secondly, we want external defense from those outside who would come and take what we have. That's the second one. And the third one has to do with advancing or at least maintaining 
people's material well-being, their standard of living, their ability to keep up with the cost of living, hence our Department of Treasury. And the fourth one is the administration of an effective system of civil justice. So you don't have posses, you don't have revenge, you don't have people going after another because they insulted you or because your family uh, had a dispute with them 40 years ago. These four things. We took all four of those away from Iraq, too. We took away their national sovereignty, their political independence, their territorial integrity, their internal safety, their external defense, their material well-being, and the existence of a system of effective civil justice. And one asks the question, why is there anti-Americanism? What did we do wrong? Um, we went, we said, for many different reasons, many of them concocted, many of them that wouldn't have seen sunshine or daylight if they were fairly uh, debated. This is partly Iraq. Uh, Dr. Baird was right that I have been privileged to go to a number of the, well, all of the heads of state summits of the um, six GCC countries. But after we did what we did, the standing joke, a sick joke at that, was that America invaded Iraq and Iran won without firing a single bullet or shedding a single drop of blood. Now this was the Iran that sponsors state terrorism has been on our terrorism list for decades. Where in the history books can you find another example where a great power handed to its nemesis a gift of that dimension? Iran now has in Baghdad the best government in Iraq it has ever had. Thanks to Uncle Sam, and being politically correct here, Aunt Samantha as well. Okay. To put Iraq back together again would require part magician, part Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, and part Jimmy the Greek, a gambler in Nevada in terms of, of luck. Here's where Humpty Dumpty really has been not fallen he was yanked off a wall. Here is where a, I don't know what the Latin word would be for killing a country, but that's what we did in Iraq. No one else did it. And <clears throat> we had no legal leg or foot upon which to stand. The Secretary General of the United Nations rightly said what America did was illegal. And yet, throughout the years before, during, and since then, we have had no end of national leaders who have said, we will only work or reward those who respect the rule of law. Okay. Um, 
this would be titled something with the initials of B and S. Okay. Let's move quickly to the others for the town that we have here. Uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. And we'll end up with Saudi Arabia, but at a gallop. Uh, Kuwait is where we have an army de facto base. Arif Dan, to try to keep Iraq from thinking again that it could take a bite out of Kuwait. All Iraqi school children have been raised believing that Kuwait should not exist except as the 19th province of Iraq. And this is in spite of what we have done to the country and its infrastructure and the fact that still to this day, 13 years after we did it, the sewers are not functioning. The electricity is not functioning. The water system is not functioning. And all three function before we did uh, what we did, okay? Uh, so Kuwait is not taking any chances and we're not taking any chances either. Kuwait is with us, and we are with Kuwait. I remember in 1990, the thousands of Americans who went into the streets saying, no blood for oil. Maybe some of you were in those demonstrations. Uh, when Kuwait was liberated, I was on the first plane into the country because I was part of Free Kuwait campaign there. And not one street light worked. No toilets flushed more than once. No hotels had doors that would lock. Schools were empty. Universities were empty. Labs were empty, etc. And people had demonstrated saying, no blood for oil. How many knew that when the Soviet Union imploded in 1989, it cut off Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Bulgaria at the economic ankles. How many know that the Soviet Union, or then Russia, cut them off in terms of their energy supplies? And how many know that the one country in the world that came in to replace what the Soviet Union had been doing for these five countries through which the winds of democracy had swept was one country, namely Kuwait, okay? How many know that the British pound sterling has for 50 years or more been psychologically linked to Kuwait because Kuwait has placed the bulk of its investments in Great Britain to strengthen the British pound sterling. And how many know that the greatest shareholder of Great Britain's largest energy producer, British Petroleum, happens to be Kuwait? Okay. How many know that when people talk about changing the international currency for business, commercial, financial transactions in some currency other than the dollar, the foremost, one of the foremost defenders of the American dollar, even though they lose, has been Kuwait. 
Okay. Coit is something other than most people think it is, all right? Move quickly to Bahrain, uh, the only Arab archipelago, uh, but now linked to Saudi Arabia by a causeway. And Bahrain, every day, every minute of every day since 1948, has had an American naval ship docked at Jufair in Bahrain since 1948. No other country uh, in the entire range of the 22 Arab countries, the 28 Middle Eastern countries, and the 57 Islamic countries can lay claim to something like that. It's the headquarters for the Fifth Fleet. It ensures not only the protection of Bahrain, but all the countries in the Gulf, including Iran. Iran has no pipelines to get its oil and gas out. Its oil and gas must go through the same exit and entrance as Kuwait's, as Bahrain's, as Qatar's, as the United Arab Emirates, and most of Saudi Arabia's oil as well. And so the Fifth Fleet, which is based in Bahrain, helps more than Bahrain. It helps the entire region. And not just to get the oil and gas out. No. All of the imports into the eight-state region. And goods and services. The 60,000 Americans who live in this particular region. Tiny as it is, not even visible on many maps. It has an outsized role, if any country has an outsized role. And it's long been host and home, and warmly so, to Americans. First and foremost, to the people affiliated with the Arabian mission of the Dutch Reformed Church of America, which before oil and before air conditioning sent the regions to the region, the region's first nurses first Western teachers, first doctors as such. This is just a little aspect of Bahrain. Cutter, many maps up until 30 years ago didn't even have Cutter on the map. People would make jokes saying, well, there's the empty quarter out there, and there's the empty Cutter out there. Um, but Cutter is a peninsula where the headquarters of the United States Central Command Forward Deployed Force is situated at Al Oded Air Base, uh, just outside of the capital of Doha. And, and Qatar's gas reserves are so vast, no one can put even an estimated number to them. Uh, they are overwhelmingly offshore. But if you look at the map, about a tenth or an eighth of what they have overlaps into Iran's waters. And there are those in Iran who say that Qatar, for all these years, has had its straw and now milkshake. And so this has been unfair because we've been sanctioned. Qatar has not. And boy, do we have a score to settle with Qatar. And some demagogues in Iran are ready, if Iran begins to fall, to blame their faults on the outside, and especially Qatar. And Qatar's population would not be, if you're charitable, and bounce them up to the highest even number 
it would not be more than 200,000. Iran's is 80 plus million. So when you say, well, can they fight their way out of a paper bag? Can they defend themselves? They would, if anything, specialize in preemptive capitulation. Okay? So this is a little bit about Qatar. Uh, but it doesn't have an army, but it has ExxonMobil. Okay? And ExxonMobil for long has been the single greatest contributor to America's treasury. The United Arab Emirates is an embarrassment to us because it is a successful confederation. We've tried it twice, and each time failed ignominiously. Theirs is 45 years and counting, okay? And it shows up in survey after survey as one of the most dynamic economies in the world, in a place where many would love to live because there are no taxes and education is free, and so is health care and the medicines that go with it, okay? But Abu Dhabi, too, is a great friend of America, and yet the whole country is little known, and if it's known, it's little understood, and if it's understood, it's little appreciated. We have an air base there in Abu Dhabi, and that air base has been a pivotal point to at times more than 500 from Abu Dhabi's small contingent helping with hospitals in Afghanistan, in Bosnia, in Somalia, uh, in other strife-torn places. They don't seek the headlines. They don't bring journalists with them. They're, they just do it. Okay? This is the United Arab Emirates. Uh, where the confederation there works, and it works well. And we couldn't make it work. Canada has made its federation work, and Switzerland has made its work, but we failed both times. We tried. What does that say about us looking down on Arabs and Muslims and asking Arabs and Muslims to be like us? You're backward. Uh, you're not progressive. Uh, as soon as you open this up, do that, this, that, and the other, then we'll return you from a call, but not until. And we come to Oman, which maybe is the outlier of the six. And Oman has its own imperial history. Oman's flag flew over Zanzibar and Pemba and Mombasa and it knows Somalia and Mogadishu well. And Oman, too, had colonies up and down the Gulf as far as Basra in Iraq, and Bahrain as well, and all of the United Arab Emirates until 200 years ago was Omani. And people can say, I'm an Iranian, I'm an Iraqi, I'm a Kuwaiti, I'm a Bahraini, I'm a Saudi Arabian, I'm a Qatari, but I'm an Emirati really hasn't yet acquired legs. It doesn't sink very far into the soil. And many Emiratis in their candid moments would say, underneath we are all Omanis. So 
uh, Oman is a different country than the rest. It's been the number one tourist destination for the better part of a decade in the Middle East there. And it's peaceful, and it's clean, and it's aesthetic, and it's artistic, and it's architecturally up to speed and then some. Uh, and yet it has a ruler with no designated successor. Ordinarily, this would make people not to want to have anything to do with a country like that. But no, not in the case of Oman, because of the way it's been led, <clears throat> and the vision and the scope of its leaders, and its peacefulness. And it's having the oldest defense-related agreement with America since 1979 under President Carter. We have an access to facilities agreement there. Many American pilots were able to land in Oman as a result of that agreement, uh, but Oman broadcast none of this. It works behind the scenes. It's in the shadows, all right? But you don't read about piracy anymore, do you, from Somalia? Because a friend of mine has gone to Somalia 18 times, and he's asked one after the other, why are you engaged in piracy? We have no employment. We, we can't get married, let alone get a loan or have access to affordable housing. What, what do you do if you were in a situation? And it came down to arithmetic. Well, what do you need? Uh, around $800 a month will do. Who has done that, made that possible? Oman. For the Americans who've been held hostage in Iran, kidnapped, hikers, tourists, gone over the border wrongly and got snatched. Who has freed them, brought them back to America? Oman. Uh, when Iranians have been killed in the Gulf as a result of something we've done, who takes their bodies back to Iran? Oman. In terms of the nuclear deal between the United States and Iran, who got the talks going? Oman. With regard to Yemen and its civil war, and who's mediating most and facilitating most to try to bring it to a peaceful end? Oman. Okay. We'll end with Saudi Arabia very quickly. Saudi Arabia has 13 neighbors. It's a continent more than a country. Okay. And there are many who say if it weren't for oil, we wouldn't have anything to do with that place which is another thing that has BS in front of it. Uh, this is the headquarters of 1.6 billion Muslims, nearly a quarter of humanity. They are the keepers of the two holiest places in Islam, Mecca and Medina. Okay? You can hardly go east to west without crossing over Saudi Arabia's territory, which it has allowed us to do from the get-go. Uh, we recognized it in 1932. We had full diplomatic relations with it in 1940. We had a, a historic relationship, or rather meeting, on February 14, 1945, when Franklin Roosevelt met with then King Abdulaziz 
bin Abdul Rahman al Saud. And people say, well, that's when the historic bargain was made. Well, we promised Saudi Arabia we would provide for their security and defense, provided they uh, produced uh, unlimited amounts of oil uh, to grease the economies of Western Europe at that time with the Marshall Plan and other countries. It wasn't us, but we wanted them to do it for others. Uh, 95% of what you read parrots echoes this, uh, which also has BS in front of it. In the 1920s, those doctors and nurses I mentioned in Bahrain were treating Saudi Arabians. They would come over once every three months and stay for five weeks, and they would treat anyone and everyone free. Okay? And it came to the point that the word got to the king, who said, and I have the quote almost verbatim, who are these Americans? Because it was the French and the British that were trying to coerce, cajole him, co-opt him. He said, they work for us, they serve others for nothing. And so it's not an accident or coincidence. When it came time to provide an oil concession for the country's mineral resources, it was an American company, Standard of California, which became Chevron. And we are the number one investor in Saudi Arabia. Our investments are greater in Saudi Arabia than all the world's other investments in Saudi Arabia combined. Our country is the number one in terms of joint commercial ventures with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been key to the stability of America's debt instruments, our treasury bills, our bonds there. It has often been in the top five of purchasing them. It has some $750 billion in its sovereign wealth fund. Uh, what if they were to pull out any of that money? That money is key to school lunches, to the salaries of civil servants uh, throughout the federal system as such. And that has a life of its own, uncoupled from oil and gas there. And Saudi Arabia has more than 300,000 graduates of American universities. Now, the in the arts and sciences, humanities, and the hard sciences of engineering. And the total number of American graduates of Saudi Arabian universities in the same field, if you're charitable, if you're a little fudging of the numbers, round it up to the highest number is zero. <laughs> Think of that in terms of an asymmetry, a misbalance, in terms of who understands the other, who has lived longer with the other, who has worked inside the system of the other. 300,000 Saudi Arabians, minimum. And at the moment, there's 60,000 Saudi Arabians studying in the United States, and quite a few go to the hospital down the street and have been doing so for quite some time. And one of them even has endowed a wing uh, of the hospital uh, there. Uh, so it's important for far more than oil and gas. Uh, I've given geography as a region, reason. I've given uh, religion, faith. Uh, in a way, it is like at the intersection of the devout. Um, 
it is the epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage of faith and spiritual devotion for a quarter of humanity. Uh, this is a country that has worked with us since 9-11 more than any other country in the world, sharing intelligence, trying to cut off financing to extremist groups, militant groups, uh, terrorist groups, and has helped foil terrorist plots uh, that would have done American a dirty deed. Why don't I stop here? and let the rest be for questions and answers. We're on time. We'll call on people, right? Sure. Um, Saudi Arabia's appointment, the king's appointment of the deputy crown prince, who is his son, by the way, that makes him number three in, in the line of succession. In between him and the king is uh, another member of the family, Mohammed bin Nayef, been, been uh, Abdulaziz bin Saud. He's the Minister of Interior. We have an agreement with him. We sold $40 billion worth of critical infrastructure protection in the last 10 years that's being managed by us and him or his ministry, the Ministry of Interior there. Uh, he's the number two. Uh, but the number one um, is not the spring chicken, so to speak. And there are those who think one of his fondest hopes and wishes, if he can pull it off, is to name his son number three to the number two position before he dies. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but the number three is extraordinary. There's no question about it. He's the only member of the ruling family in a high position of decision-making and leadership who was not educated outside of the kingdom. So that right there is unique and distinct. He's 30 years old, rounding it off to the nearest birthday. Uh, and he is in charge of the economic reformation of the country. He sacked the Minister of Petroleum in the last week, the longest serving Minister of Petroleum in the world, partly because he started when he was 11 years old. Uh, there, he's a friend. Um, he also heads the Council of Security and Political Affairs for the kingdom. So he's got a big chunk of the reality on the ground. Uh, it remains to be seen whether he will make a move to be number two or number two will do something to prevent him from doing that or number one will try to appoint him to number two and find a way to sideline number two right now. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but he has been dynamic. Two days ago, he issued 51 decrees in one day. He would think he had had blisters on his tongue enunciating them. 51 decrees are shaking up the government and reformulating this and that ministry there. Um, so he is dynamic. He's a workaholic. He's working right now probably till 2 and 3 in the morning. Uh, but he's 30 years old, and, of course, each and every one of you used to do that too. And a few of you still do that. I know you do. Okay. Um, 